Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. If somebody had said when I was a law student that I would be running for office, number one, number two, that it would be that difficult and I would be able to succeed, I would have said, yeah, sure. So you never know what you're capable of. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest, one of the Vice Deans at NYU School of Law. It's in my role as co-chair of the Women's Leadership Network that we're having this conversation. Our guest today is Doris Lynn Cohen, a 1979 graduate of NYU Law and a judge on the New York State Supreme Court, appellate term, first department. Regarded as a staunch advocate for people who might not be in the position to speak for themselves, tenants, immigrants, the LGBT community, she earned her Bachelor's of Art in Psychology from Brooklyn College and a JD from our own NYU School of Law. Judge, welcome. I'm so delighted to talk with you today. When I voted last month, I actually got weepy. Um, that's not so unusual for me when I vote, but I saw your name on the ballot and I was like, oh, she's one of ours. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to talk to the NYU community. Thank you very much for your vote. Uh, I won't pe keep people in suspense. I did win, uh, so I've been reelected. <laughs> this is a good thing. The whole purpose of this series is to support women. So we have a tradition of starting with this question about your experience both as a law student and as a professional. So how was that? experience for you and how was being a woman a part of that experience? So I grew up in Chinatown and my parents were immigrants and um, it was something which they were focused on making a living and not really understood the law or anything else and we lived on the top floor of a five-story walk up in Chinatown on Mott Street and um, they didn't know any of their rights. They were tenants. And uh, I remember the ceiling falling on me. And they had no idea what to do or anything else. And so that was kind of what informed my legal career before I became a lawyer. So I had that experience. And um, later on, my mother was a victim of a crime. And they found the perpetrators, and she had to go to court. And I was a translator, so I was a teenager. Uh, we went to court, and we sat there the entire day, had no idea what was going on. At the end of the day, a court officer was kind enough to say, you can go home now. And we didn't know what had gone on, but they gave me a number. I called the next day. I found out that they had resolved the case, but they didn't bother telling us. Um, <laughs> we sat there all day. So uh, that certainly informed my experience um, in terms of growing up, uh, in terms of uh, realizing that there is a need for legal information, particularly for people who are not English speaking, for immigrants, for people who don't have access to lawyers. You said you grew up in Chinatown. Did you grow up speaking Chinese? I spoke Chinese initially, yes, that was my first language. Uh, my Chinese is not so good now, but <laughs> yes, that was my first language. It's interesting because growing up in Chinatown with an immigrant family, 
hits right to the heart of something that we talk a lot about, the intersectionality of gender and race. So we're obviously talking about gender mm -hmm. as part of this leadership network, mm -hmm. but you got slammed right in the middle of this confluence of race and gender. Absolutely, and also, although I grew up in Chinatown, my father had a laundry in Brooklyn, so every morning we would get up early, we would go have breakfast and some coffee shop, and then we'd get on the train and he would drop me off uh, at a public school, and everybody there was white. So I had, and I was the only Asian kid. On, holiday, on Jewish holidays, it was me and an African-American girl in another class, and they put us together because we're the only ones basically in, in our class, if not the whole school. Uh, so I was very cognizant that, of being different. I don't know that there's one that takes precedent over the other. Do you have a sense of that? I think it is when you are both a woman and a woman of color, I think that intersection provides for different experiences, I think, than just being a woman or just being a person of color. It just adds a layer to it. It definitely adds another layer to it. So the very idea of, I'm, I'm having this vision of you being a little kid with the ceiling falling on you um, in your housing, well, that happens to people. But you were inspired by it. Yes, and I didn't realize I was inspired by it until much later on. So after I graduated NYU, my first job was at Bed-Stuy Legal Services, uh, and, which is in a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn. And um, I did a lot of landlord-tenant work. I did um, helping people with government benefits and things like that. And so I didn't really put it together until a little later on that it was because of that experience. It was, it, you know, sometimes it's subconscious. And then I said, oh, now I get it. But when you kind of examine your life and it's like, oh, yeah, I understand where it came from. We have this sense of looking back and braiding this all together. Um, it's, so this, is, this notion of justice clearly was a huge driver for you. And I love this story. I, I have a sense of just being able to really visualize you as a kid growing up. And I think about this road to the law school is all these little marking moments. Um, the urge to make a difference, obviously, in your community is huge. I've heard you talk about your knitting group in law school. Um, I also heard you talk about your making your sewing your own robes. It seems like you were not necessarily a typical law student either. What was your experience like in law school? It was, well, in law school, the knitting group was afterwards, actually. Um, I came back as an alum, and uh, we did this informal knitting group for mostly women of color. It started off with the Apalsa and then a Broaden, uh, but it was um, focused on creating a community, and I brought other alums to come in, and it was all informal. I think administration did not know we were even doing this. Uh, this was a few years ago, and so before the Women's Collective and, all, and Women of Color Collective, um, there are lots of great programs now, but. I remember as a law student feeling pretty isolated, actually, uh, not really feeling part of the community. It was all new to me. I didn't really know lawyers. I knew one lawyer that my father had gone to for an immigration problem who said he couldn't help uh, my father. My father ended up actually, although he never graduated elementary school, 
Uh, he was pretty smart. He tried to figure it out himself. So I didn't really have mentors, and so I had to figure it out myself. That's why I think it's important, and this is why I do it, is to mentor a lot of people. I keep on coming back to NYU, as, as you know. Uh, I also take a lot of interns uh, and try to help them. Uh, so I've taken high school students, college students, uh, and obviously law students, and then post-graduation, if they can find a job, they come and work for me for a little while, and somehow I can't keep them. They go for a paying job. Could you imagine? <laughs> they always want money. Yes, they always want money. But I'm happy. It's what we're supposed to do, and, and they they get experience and they leave. I think that's not uncommon for people who feel like they're on the outside in some way, and it's certainly not. I hear it from women. It's not uncommon from women generally that notion that they didn't have a mentor or they didn't have a sponsor. And women of our generation then tend to really take it seriously. But we patch it together. I say we take our support where we can get it, wherever it's possible. So you sit on a bench where you're the only woman. Is that true? I was the only woman for many years. And now I'm happy to say there's another woman who just came on a few months ago. How did that change the dynamic? Um, I haven't sat with her a lot, but I think that it is, it was a different dynamic only because it was acknowledged that there were two women. The first time we sat together, uh, the person who was the presiding judge actually made mention of it, which was a nice thing um, and something to really, it was historic because I think it was the first time two women were on this particular court. So it was worth mentioning. Unfortunately, I mean, it's been how many years? And to have a second woman, it's kind of remarkable in this day and age. I often feel like myself when I'm the only woman in a conversation. Mm -hmm. There's a shift when all of a sudden there's another woman in the room. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I don't have to bear the burden somehow in quite the same way. I'm not sure what that's about, but I definitely get that that it changes things a little. For the past few years, women have occupied nearly 50% of law school classes across the United States. This year um, at NYU, we have 55% women. Yet, there is this very significant disparity between women's representation in the law school and their representation on the bench. We uh, hear that called the gavel gap. The National Women's Law Center said that there are only 82 women of color serving as active federal judges across the U.S. and only 12 women of color on the U.S. Court of Appeals. So, according to the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy, women make up 30% of state court judges and women of color only 8% of state court judges. I know that the path to judgeship is intentional. It's sometimes complicated. You shared a little bit about your experience that attracted you to the law, but a judgeship? What brought you to this particular path? Unlike a lot of people, I never thought about becoming a judge. Um, for most of my career, there weren't any Asian American judges. And I helped start the Asian American Bar Association. And um, one of our mandates was to increase the number of Asian American judges. So at that point, there were three. I was already more than 10 years out of law school. So we were trying to understand the process because the process is not uh, that transparent. And so we invited various 
decision makers, people who we thought understood the process to speak to us. And one person we invited was the chair of the mayor's committee on the judiciary. And he said, well, the reason why there aren't any Asian American judges is because nobody applies. And so I filed that away, and we all filed that away. And at some point, I saw an advertisement in the New York Law Journal, the legal newspaper in New York State, and it said, if you're interested in being a judge, apply to the screening panel. And I remembered that conversation, and I said, well, I, and it was for civil court, which was the court I'm mainly focused on as a legal services attorney, so it dealt with housing issues and issues, uh, consumer credit, things like that. And I said to myself, I've been to civil court thousands of times. I know the quality of justice my clients got, which often was not quite the sort of justice they expected. Uh, I remember actually at the same time during that period, uh, the Franklin Williams Commission on Minorities, which is a, a court judicial commission, was convening and they were asking for stories uh, from practitioners, from litigants, and one of my stories had to do with when I represented someone uh, when I was at Bedside Legal Services, uh, my client was African American, and um, the judge looked around the room and it was packed, it was housing court packed, it was a calendar part, and she said, these people, they bring their children thinking I'm gonna be sympathetic. Wow. And I was just, I couldn't close my mouth. I was just like aghast at this, what this woman would say. And my client had brought her children because she had no other childcare. So it was something that I certainly remembered. And when I saw that ad, I said, I could do better. And I applied and went through the process, uh, which was intensely political, which I had not expected. And I learned that the person who came to speak to us, who said it's because nobody applies, that's really not the reason why there aren't enough Asian American judges or other judges of color. It's because of the lack of political power. And so, I had to negotiate the whole system and figure it out, and I eventually ran. Uh, I ran a contested race, and well, the rest is history, but it was very difficult. I was called chinky, chinky, chinky uh, to my face in front of my child, who was with me at the time. So it's, you know, it's all good. Uh, I didn't realize if somebody had said when I was a law student that I would be running for office, number one. Number two, that it would be that difficult and I would be able to succeed. I would have said, yeah, sure. Um, so you never know what you're capable of. It's dazzling in all the wrong ways when I hear this. It's really, it's really astonishing. That person who said there's a reason that it's, people just don't apply. But you applied. Mm-hmm. When I think about this, there's a dearth of information. You didn't have the power. What can we do to change the pipeline? Well, it's important to put folks 
in positions where they get experience. So the first thing is to make available more internships. So that's kind of the foot in the door so that you can get a good reference from a judge and then apply for a clerkship. And so that's, that's the important part. I also, the, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association uh, just did a study, and the results are not fully out yet, but one of the results was that people who get references from professors, more than one reference, have a better chance. And a lot of times I think folks of color don't develop the relationships with professors or they feel that, well, maybe the professor won't write me a reference. And it's really kind of believing in yourself and just trying. I mean, the worst that could happen is they'll say no, but that's a very important piece to getting a clerkship. It's actually probably crucial. And um, the study, as I understand, it looks at people of different races and you know who actually gets those sort of references and who doesn't or who asks. I mean, it's part of it is asking. There's a very common um, conversation around the law school where the women faculty will say that women who do well in their classes just kind of quietly go away and they have to chase them. The faculty have to chase them to come in and say, listen, you did really, really well in my class, and I'd love to be able to support you into the next step. So that capacity to ask and to step up doesn't necessarily come naturally. And if you're part of an Asian American community where you feel like an immigrant and you're already an outsider, I can totally see this, that you might want to pull your punches and not really go in slugging. I said one time at an SBA meeting, don't be a chicken liver, get to know your faculty. Mm -hmm. um, because getting to know your faculty or getting to know someone who can put a word in for you seems Absolutely. to be what it's all about. Absolutely, particularly for clerkships. So your superpower, you've kind of told us this, your, your, I call it your magic mojo, is that you just get up and go for it. Absolutely, and that's not to say I didn't have doubts or anything else, but it's also when you fall down, it's resilience, it's getting up and being stubborn. I think I always called it, part of me is very stubborn that I will continue, uh, even though it looks like the odds are against me. We call that tenacity. tenacity. It's okay, Judge, you can, you can call it tenacity. tenacity. <laughs> being stubborn, um, yes, absolutely. And lots of people give up. They, they hit a wall and that's it. So you gotta figure out how to go around the wall, over the wall. Um, I think that's, that's the difference. Uh, there, I know people who want to be judges, and the minute they hit the wall, that's it. So I think part of it is the tenacity, getting up and just continuing. What stops, what stops us? It's, I mean, it, it's not necessarily power or money. Do you think it's embarrassment? Maybe embarrassment. Some of it may be insecurity, because it's a very public process in the sense that People may have criticisms of you and all that, and at the end of the day, you have to really be strong and say, okay, you may have a valid criticism. How am I going to make myself better? Or it is not a valid criticism because I find X, Y, and Z. I think for some people, it, there's this sense of insecurity, and it feeds into it to be criticized. We get insecure pretty early on. I think you raised something really interesting that um, it's hard to know what's valid. So if somebody gives you a criticism, 
Well, is it useful? You have to listen to it non-defensively. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But how do you sort out what's useful and what's not then? Well, sometimes it's if you hear from different sources. Sometimes if you can figure out their motivation or you know something about where it's coming from, uh, then it may not be a valid criticism. Um, I call it my gut instinct. Mm-hmm. I can sometimes figure that out because I know where they're coming from. You know which ones are well-meaning and which ones are actually, I sometimes say that feedback is a rare and dangerous gift. And if you can learn to accept it, Mm -hmm. it's pretty powerful. Right. Sometimes if it's not, they don't call it criticism, they're giving you advice. Uh, When I was running, for example, somebody said to me, oh, you can't wear a leather jacket. Where's that coming from? (laughs) Or you should wear contacts. And then you would think, this person has never run a campaign before. She's never been a candidate. Why is she telling me this? And why should I listen to that? I'm both astonished at how much criticism and feedback I get and well-meaning advice. And sometimes I'm grateful and sometimes it just exhausts me. So I can only imagine if you're running for office, you've got a lot of little unpaid campaign managers telling you what to do. Somebody actually told me and it was an elder in the community who said, you should go to the phone book and call every single you know, person who is Asian. And I said to myself, thank you very much for that advice, but clearly that's not the way to win a campaign. <laughs> this is a corny question. I'm gonna ask you two corny questions. One is you, I'm sitting here in your very august chambers here. Um, what do you do for fun? I do lots of things for fun. I think it's really important to have a balance. Um, I actually just saw a bunch of my former interns, and each one of them I said, okay, particularly the ones who are working public interest because it's a lot on your shoulder. And so I say to them, okay, so how do you chill out? And I was giving advice. So one was, um, she was talking about her job is very stressful, and I said, okay, you have to do something fun. So I said, do you like to do crafts? Do you like to do crafts? How about knitting or crocheting? I find that. I've done that. Uh, I've done yoga, meditation. And right now, my, I guess my way of relaxing is to do Tai Chi, which when I was younger, I did, but I never understood it. Now, as I'm older, I get it. I said, OK, first of all, it's a martial arts. Number two, it's, it's actually walking meditation. So you get to do the meditation part plus the flexibility part. And so I'm getting a number of my former interns to join me in doing Tai Chi. And, uh, and I love music. So I go listen to music a lot. Okay, you're going to have to explain Tai Chi to me sometime because I walk past uh, nice, sweet little old ladies in my park and I think, what is it, that magic thing that they're doing? It seems very cool, this kind of slow-motion, beautiful dance. Yes, it is a slow-motion, beautiful dance on one level, but it teaches you balance, it teaches you flexibility, and it is ultimately a martial arts. So you can use those different moves in a martial arts application and take somebody down. I love it. Yes. And there's more to the Tai Chi, so you get to learn sword and knife and all sorts of other things. Come on, have you gone that far? Yes. Ashley, I'm starting to. That seems very cool. From this vantage point in your life, looking back, 
What advice would you give to the brave but scared young law student you once were? I was a very scared law student. Uh, my first year, I was very, very scared and nervous and anxious all the time. So I would say that my advice to that person is to relax and to know that law school is not the end-all be-all. First year is not the end-all be-all. Uh, lots of people don't necessarily do the best in law school, but the first year, second year is a whole other ball game. And for me, I did much better the second and third year. I kind of figured it out. And then at the end of the day, I think law school helps you get your first job. But how you perform at your first job helps you get your second, third, and fourth. So loosen up, have fun with life, and enjoy the experience. That's good advice for everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Justice Lynn Cohen, for taking the time to speak with me today and for sharing your experiences with our listeners. It was my pleasure. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership leadership.